In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. Verse 3 on page 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me is preferred before Me. For He he was before Me. And of His fullness, we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. You may be seated. classical partition of the book of John is this. This is the structure that people will normally use for the book of John. They say there's an epilogue at the very end. There's an introduction at the very beginning. So they'll say prologue, epilogue. The prologue is verses 1 through 18. The epilogue is the last chapter. In the middle, they say about halfway through, you have a division into parts. That's it. It's the basic outline that you'll see in most commentaries on John. Prologue, first half, second half, epilogue. At the same time, you can find commentaries with dozens of outlines. I have looked at outlines that try to suggest that there's a chiastic structure. There may well be. They are long and complex. They are difficult. I'm not certain of them. There are books that are dedicated to showing that the book of John is a rehashing of the book of Exodus in special form. There are other books that are dedicated to saying that the book of John rehashes the whole of the scriptures in an interesting way. There are books that talk about how the book of John is a walking through the tabernacle, that the whole structure of the book is like walking through the tabernacle. 
my first version of this sermon was basically two or three sermons long, verses, uh, versions of being able to talk about those different outline forms. And you will notice that they are not there. They are all gone. Um, my intention is to show you some of the features of John as we walk through, rather than having a long introductory explanation of those possibilities, because I think there are some things that you will appreciate as you see it as we start to walk through it. I do think that the classical structure is valuable, and I'll show you that as we go through. That's why I've broken up using the initial prologue piece that is the classical introduction to the book, verses 1 through 18. We'll spend some time there. It's a very dense text, and all the things in the prologue are taught throughout the book in multiple places. In addition to that, we will look at the way in which the book of John seems to be sort of a walking through the tabernacle because it presents to us Christ as the tabernacle. It presents Christ as God tabernacling with us. And so I think that is a structural form for the book itself. And so as we we look through this, I want to give you what I believe is the plain, clear purpose statement of the book. So at the beginning here, the first verse that I want us to analyze is John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Going away, it's way at the end of the book. So here's what it says. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Okay, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. The written word is given to us to know that Jesus is the Christ, which is a title. He is the office holder. He's the prophet, priest, king. He is the triple anointed. He is the Messiah. And he is the Son of God. He is God the Son. He is the eternal one. And in believing these words, we are believing the Word, and in possessing the Word, by having the words, we have life. And He is the life. We possess God by possessing His words. And so the divinity of Christ is a theme that is clearly laid out for us from the beginning. This book plainly focuses on that. It's designed to show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's actually the focus of John's Gospel. Okay, what I, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit more, but I want to give you a contrast. So look at page 2 of the outline. When you look at the Scriptures as a whole, right, Genesis is the beginning book. It introduces us to, to everything. And John does call back to Genesis. It started with, in the beginning. Right? That should, that's gonna, any Jewish reader is immediately going to think of Genesis in the beginning. It calls us to think about God. It, think, it calls us to think about Jesus and His divine nature. And His origins are self-existence. Okay, but when we look at other books, right, when you go from Genesis forward, you have Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers... And they each have a very clear focus. Exodus focuses on Moses as a prophet who comes to speak 
Leviticus focuses on the priesthood. And when we get to Numbers, it very clearly focuses on the civil sphere and focuses on kingship in terms of war fighting and organization and the civil order of things. And Deuteronomy recaptures it, comes down as a capstone for the Torah. When you go forward from Deuteronomy, you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings. That is a continuous line talking about the kingly order. That is the focus that you end up with. That gets retraced in 1st and 2nd Chronicles as a priestly order. Now, when you go forward, you continue, you continue to see these types of things in the Word, and you have the, the prophets, the major and minor prophets, which obviously focus on the prophetic office. But as you go forward and you get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each have their own focal points. Matthew is focused on the kingship of Christ. It continues from that historical line that we just traced, the main line there, that Joshua through 2 Kings line, which gets picked up in Nehemiah and goes on. Matthew focuses on Christ receiving the messianic kingship through the line of David as his inheritance line. It gives us a a list of names. It shows us a genealogy. It connects us. And it's important that he is the heir of David. Mark focuses on prophetic office. It focuses on John at the very beginning preaching in the wilderness. We jump straight there. And in Luke, we begin with the priestly family of John the Baptist, and we look at going into the temple, and we look at Christ, and we get a couple chapters in, we end up with Christ's genealogy again, and it's different from the genealogy in Matthew, because it's the genealogy through Mary, and it's showing us that he not only is the heir of David, but that he receives a body from the line of David. And so Matthew is focused on the kingship, Mark is focused on the prophetic office, and Luke is focused on the priestly office, and that continues into the book of Acts, also written by Luke, which shows us the change from the old covenant church to the new covenant church. And so in having those outlines, we are shown much, and Christ is given to us, so that we look at the prophetic office focused on Christ, we look at the kingly office focused on Christ, the priestly office focused on Christ, And when we get to John, John is focused upon Christ as the God-man. And so it doesn't begin with a genealogy. It doesn't begin with a prophet speaking about him. It begins with, in the beginning was the Word. John is the most odd duck of the Gospels. There are three main historical events that overlap it from John with the other Gospels. The other Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels. The reason is because optic, right, to look, right, and sin is with, to, to look with each other. So the idea is they're very similar in how they look at Christ. All of them focus on the whole three and a half year public ministry of Christ. They all kind of give a broader view of his life. Matthew and Luke give us stuff that's about his childhood, right, and his birth. 
And so what we have is sort of this general viewpoint. The book of John covers 20 days. Chapters 13 through 19 are about one day. It's a weird book compared to the others. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written as compilations of witnesses' accounts. Matthew was an eyewitness of a lot of it, but he obviously wasn't there for the birth of Christ. He wasn't there for some of the things that are early on. He's a disciple. He's following around, but he also pulls together other things. Mark was not present for the vast majority of Christ's life. And Luke is gathering witnesses. Luke was not one of those disciples in the early period. So what you have is Matthew, Mark, and Luke being compilers of eyewitnesses, whereas John is giving eyewitness personal reminiscences. As a result, the content feels very different. Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on the public offices and focus on the crowds. John has a series of individual interactions. And I think that there's an important reason for this change of emphasis. The other ones are focused on a particular public office of Christ. But John is focused upon the divinity of Christ. And if he is the deity the intimacy of the interaction between God and man is such that God knows every thought and intent of your heart. He's planned them. And so the interaction that we have with God, there's a calling here into thinking about not so much the external forms, not so much the way in which there is a covenant community, though that is talked about. Not so much in terms of the way that we would think about our lives with other men. But the concern is, have you understood and believed the words that are from the Word? And so that very personal, very intimate interaction with the inward man, that all of the good, all of the might, all of the power that you would seek to exercise as a man of valor and a man of dominion comes from the light giving life to you. That you will not bear fruit, you will not be good, you will not be wise, you will not be useful unless the God of heaven and earth plants life in you. And so that individual interaction with God is the emphasis there. I have emphasized in my ministry the covenant institutions. You've all heard me repeatedly talk to you about the individual household, church, and state. Hopefully you've memorized their powers. And as we think about the difference between John and these other works, John focuses on questions of epistemology, how do we know, and metaphysics, the nature of reality. One of the most famous sets of things that are in the book of John are laid out for us. Go back to page 1. They're called the seven signs and the seven I am statements. The seven signs and the seven I am statements. 
You know, I talked to you about how the middle of the book from chapter 2, middle of chapter 1, to about the middle point, is typically considered that first major section. It's normally called the Book of Signs. Okay, so chapter 119, all the way through the end of chapter 10, is typically called the Book of Signs. And that is because of this idea that there's an emphasis on the signs there. The first four, uh, sorry, the first five, six, I messed up with the order on part of it, forgive me there. Uh, sign six is in chapter nine. And so you have the first, uh, the first six of the signs that are the major signs are given for us in that first part of the book. And then you have the reality of what those signs are pointing to, starting to get emphasized, which is again the divinity of Christ. And so you have the seven I am statements. And that's one of the things that points to the book of Exodus, and one of the reasons why some people will organize this in terms of an outline pointing to Exodus, is because Exodus is where you have Moses talking to God, and at the burning bush, God identifies himself as, I am that I am. I am who I am. And that's the law of identity, right? A is A. But it's also God asserting, I am definitionally what I am. And so the thing you need to do is you need to learn who I am. You need to gain from my revelation a knowledge of who I am. One of the things that's also often pointed there, pointed to there, theologians will make much of this, they will say, I am that I am points to the aseity of God, which is a way of saying the self-dependence or the independence of God, which points to the eternality of God. But we get that very early in the book of Genesis, right? In the beginning, God. The eternality of God is pointed to right there. Verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, first book. So we're reminded of those things. But the idea of the I am statements, in Greek it's ego and me. And in Hebrew we have this Yahweh. And so the statement that I am that I am, these I am statements in Greek, point us to the divinity of Christ. And so we're told about the fact that Christ is the bread of life. We're told about the fact that He is the light of the world, the door of the sheep. He is the good shepherd. He's the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And He is the true vine. And so all of the signs are things that point to that. And we'll analyze them as we get to them individually. But I want to point out that these signs, two out of the seven signs, are things that are mentioned in the other Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels. I talked to you about how there are three major historical points that are touched on in the Synoptic Gospels that are also repeated in John. One of them is Christ feeding the 5,000. Mentioned in the Synoptics, mentioned in John. Another one is Christ walking on the sea. And the third one is the day of the crucifixion. Which again, I told you, is chapters 13 through 19. We have a, a long chunk there that is the day of the crucifixion. Those three historical events are the touchstones that interact in addition with the characters and the personalities of those characters that we see across them. But those are points of similarity. So we move into the text now. I hope is that you have some sense of the distinctiveness of John. You have some idea of how it relates to the other Gospels, how it relates to the, the Scriptures as a whole. And its distinctiveness from the other Gospels and from the general themes of books focusing on the public offices of prophet, priest, and king, Christ here, the idea is that those all come together in the God-man. And so the emphasis on Christ as the God-man. 
So we begin chapter 1, verse 1. I'm on page 2 of the outline. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. These sentences have a lot of ink spilled about them. The first three centuries of the church seem to be dominated by a discussion of these verses above anything else. Origen's commentary on these takes many pages. Augustine spends several sermons on them. Cyril of Alexandria spends a lot of time talking about these. You find Chrysostom spending an enormous amount of time on this. There's a lot of people in the early church that write and talk about this at great length. And that makes sense because the principal point of conflict in the early church is first the triune God. How do we make sense of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And then the Incarnation. And so Nicaea, the creed of Nicaea, captures for us the settlement that is reached that accurately communicates the Scripture doctrine of the Trinity. Three ontological persons with one shared definition, with agreement about roles, equal in glory, seeking to glorify each other. And Chalcedon captures for us the doctrine of the Incarnation. One person with two distinct natures. And it captures for us the idea of the eternality of the divinity. And how there is a human nature that comes into existence at a point in time. And that that change is not a change of the divine nature, but that it is without conversion. It's not a changing of God. Without confusion. It's not a mixing, like a chemical mixing in some sort of lab. There's not a composition where you're slapping pieces together. It's not Lego God, man. And once the human nature is made, it never goes away. It's forever. Without change from that point. So that's the settlement of Chalcedon, which actually accurately captures and now is, is captured for us in the Reformation confessions. So chapter 3, for example... Chapter 2, for example, in the Westminster Confession, talks about God, the triune nature of God. So, as we walk through these verses, you will also notice that these are the verses that the cults today focus on, trying to make sure that we can't use them. Jehovah's Witnesses, who are Arians, they believe that Christ was created. That's Arianism, that Christ in his divine nature doesn't exist, because he's just a creature. That's all. And then there's modalism, which is the error that there are not three persons, but rather one person acting in three different ways. So Arianism and modalism are the two major heresies that you will see about the Trinity that are commonly propounded even today. But with the cults, they tend to be Arian. They say that Christ in his divine nature doesn't exist. Christ is merely created. So Jehovah's Witnesses will say that, and Mormons will say that with a twist. Because the creation process is procreation with a spiritual father and a spiritual mother having a spiritual baby called Jesus. And so that idea of him being made by a procreation is a, another twisting of this. But these verses, 
very plainly deal with it. Don't let them have them. Don't pretend like they're not clear. Don't let go of these verses. There are other verses too, but these are not ones you should give up on. You should not throw up your hands and say, oh, we can't defend the position from these verses. Yes, we can, which is why they are so trained in them. They are trained to make sure that the verses lose all meaning. So watch me. Let's walk through this. Let's talk about these verses. And let's see how plainly they teach to us the divinity of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. This clearly reminds us of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. That's the point. If somebody says this is not talking about Christ being God, just go to Genesis 1.1 and put them side by side and say, in the beginning, God, in the beginning was the Word. What are we talking about here? The relationship is obvious. And the Word was with God. Now, most of the time, people don't talk about being with themselves. Who hang out with? Myself. You're with another person. And the point is that in the beginning was the Word. We go, okay, so it's God. God's the Word. And He's with God. What? How do we deal with that? And the Word was God. What? Take those three propositions and reconcile them. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The only way to have God be with God, other than to make it into some joke about hanging out alone, is to say, there are two persons who are God. And it's very plainly the case that this person is eternal. Because that's a part of the definition of God. That's laid out there. How do we know the definition of God? We know the definition of God because the Scriptures plainly lay out for us the attributes of God so that we say, here is the positive definition. Here is what God says of Himself. And so ask yourself, can you do away with this? You cannot coherently do away with God. You will find yourself and a meaningless ball of contradiction. So verse 2 captures for us a summation of these things. He was, in the beginning, with God. He doesn't repeat the fact that he's God there, because those things by themselves, the fact that he was in the beginning, that by itself points to the fact that he's God. It was made out to be more explicit earlier on, but that repetition, the idea that he was in the beginning, that by itself means he's God. If you're eternal, if you were there at the beginning and you weren't made by God, if you were there at the beginning, then you are God. If you're eternal, you must be unchanging. And to be unchanging, you must be uncreated. To be uncreated is to be God. So the word was in the beginning is an assertion that the word is eternal. The word was with God is an assertion that the Word is distinct from another who is also God. He's able to be with this other. The Word was God is just plainly teaching us that the Word is God. He's God. The Word was in the beginning with God. The Word is the eternal God with another who is the eternal God also. And so now, one of the things we might want to ask ourselves is, the Word? Like, What a weird way to refer 
to God. The Word. Now, people like to take this idea of the Word and remove it from anything connected with the word Word. Because when you emphasize that God is the Word, what you're emphasizing is that God is thought. God's a thinker. God's logical. God is reasoning. God is wisdom. God is doctrine. God is sentences and paragraphs. And dare I say, words. You say all those other things, people get kind of offended. If I say God's a doctrine, what? If I say God is thought, if I say God's a word, God is word, God is the word, everybody just mystifies it into not being offended. They don't typically know what they mean, but it's okay, because who really does? Now, God is the word, he's the logos. And when you look at that word logos, wisdom, doctrine, paragraph, sentence, word, reason, logic, ratio, also possible, Pythagoras would be very happy with that. So this idea of mathematical things, doctrinal things, reasoning things, that's intentional. John didn't just pick a bad word. He wasn't failing here to pick something useful. He was intentionally engaging with the idea that you cannot think, you cannot know, you cannot have wisdom without God. And God is thought and wisdom and truth. This is going to be repeated over and over again. And that life at its core is the life of thought. And without thought, life in its deep sense is not possible. At the highest form of creature that is living, angels and men are thinking beings. They are rational creatures. That elevates them above the rest of creation. And so we're introduced here to the idea of the Logos being used in multiple ways, all of which actually unite together anyways. And we're introduced to the idea of Logos as the Divine Son. He is the Christ, the second person of the Trinity. He is the Logos. Now, go to page 3. When we think about God as Logos, what we're asserting is that God is logical, that logic is eternal, it's uncreated. We are presuppositionalists, which means that we assert that People operate out of their presuppositions, but more importantly, all knowledge depends upon presuppositions. We start with the Word of God, the revealed Word. He delivers words from His mind to men. He does so through prophets. He does so by capturing it in the Scriptures. And He has designed us so that we are receptacles of words, understanders of words, thinkers of words. And so these words that He gives to us, He is delivering Himself by sentences. And all of these thoughts are structured in logical form. They're propositions. There's a subject, and there's something we're saying about the subject, and we connect them. So you say, God is eternal. God, subject. That's what we're talking about. Eternal. It's a predicate. That's what we're saying about God. And we link it together with the word is. God is eternal. That's a proposition. It's a unit of thought. If I just say God to you, it's either meaningless, it's an incomplete sentence, 
or you replace it with a definition. If I say eternal to you, it's meaningless, or you replace it with a definition. Only by thinking God is eternal, or God is God. I am what I am. You have these structures of thought. That is the word. That is the logos. We have these propositions, these words delivered, the eternal word from the mind of God. Now embedded in that is rationality itself, meaning that the truth is systematic, it's coherent. There are immediate inferences that can be drawn. For example, if I say that God is eternal, that also means God is not non-eternal. It's an immediate inference. You don't need another sentence to get that. It's an immediate inference. In addition to that, you can put sentences together into syllogisms. And so you can say things like what Jesus himself says, where he says, God is the God of the living and not of the dead. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living, would be that conclusion. Those three propositions are put together. I might have the order wrong, but he does those things when arguing against the Sadducees. He has a syllogism where he structures together an argument and shows the reasoning. So we have the idea that God is rational. And in being rational, he's systematic, he's coherent. He has immediate inferences that can be drawn from what he reveals, and you can get new sentences by putting sentences together and drawing conclusions. He is knowable. He is thought-thinking thought, and guess what? He knows himself. He knows himself. He knows his own counsel. He is not unknown. Not only is he knowable, but he's known. Any place where there's thought, that thought must be known. It must be a thought that is known by some thinker. And so we have God is the eternal one. He is eternally the knower of all things. He is the reason and wisdom. He is the logic. He is a thinker. There are eternal words in the eternal word. He is made up of all of that truth. He is truth. He is universal. He's everywhere. He's the same for everyone, everywhere, at all times. Truths don't change. And that implies, of course, that he's eternal or unchanging. And Augustine makes much of this. He argues against the philosophers of his day and shows how if there is truth at all, that truth must be eternal and that truth must be in an eternal mind. The argument essentially goes like this. He says, Do you think that 2 plus 2 became 4 when you were born? Will it stop being true after you die? Okay, so is truth dependent upon human minds? Is it 2 plus 2 equals 4 before your father and your mother and before your grandparents? How about after your great-great-grandchildren pass from the earth? Will 2 plus 2 still equal 4? And so the idea that those truths do not depend upon any one finite or temporal mind, but rather they depend upon the eternal mind. They are in the eternal mind. They are eternally true. They will be true forever. They have been true forever. They cannot be changed. And so they exist in the eternal mind. Truth itself, for it to be unchanging, for not be lost, to not have a starting point, means that there's an eternal mind. Because thoughts don't exist outside of minds. The very nature of it, once you adopt the idea of truth, the definition of truth itself has embedded in it the need for God. Which is why 
atheists are drawn towards skepticism, which is why they will say that there aren't absolutes. Our culture is the flourishing of the rejection of truth. It is trying to tear down truth everywhere. And that's why they do it even in math now. That's why they do it even in math now. Because they are trying to destroy truth everywhere it can be found. Which means they must destroy it everywhere because it is everywhere. Because it's universal. Because it's God. This is the war against God. They hate Him. They hate God. And that manifests itself in the hatred of 2 plus 2 equals 4. And the difference between a boy and a girl. It is the hatred of God. Now, I want you to remember Arianism and modalism. These Trinitarian heresies. These verses, these two verses put together, very plainly teach that Christ is the eternal God. He is not created. And modalism plainly teaches the doctrine that the Father and the Son are the same person. And this verse set wipes that out. He is God and He was with God. So those things, modalism and Arianism, you need to know what they are and you need to be ready to defeat them. And these two verses are a pocket knife to kill them with. You can take them everywhere. And they're very convenient and easy to unpack. Verse 3. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. This is an excellent set of propositions. A universal affirmative and a universal negative. And I delight in that. I'm sure you're already giddy, right? So when you look at these things, let's, 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 pack, let's unpack. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. So all things were made through or by the Word, the Logos. No things were made except for the things that were made by or through Him. Do you see how those two universal statements, one of them, everything is made, made by Him. Nothing made except for the stuff made by Him. So is it possible for Him to be made? Can He make Himself? Can He pour Himself as a drink? Right? Is there some way for Him to cook Himself up in the oven? This is not the case. He is unmade, uncreated, eternal. This very plainly teaches it. The position of Jehovah's Witnesses and Arians that He is the first angel or first creature and then everything else is made is plainly contradicted when it says, without Him nothing was made that was made. Oh, He made everything else. Yeah, but without Him nothing was made that was made. Is He made? If you think He's made, nothing was made without Him. So how did He make Himself? It's nonsense. The reason these verses are attacked is because they so plainly teach against the doctrine of Arianism. And verse 3 is ignored. You know why it's ignored? Because the Mormons don't want you reading it. The Jehovah's Witnesses don't want you reading it. They want to spend all the time they can on the definite articles in front of the word logos. They want to pretend like they know Greek. They don't read Greek. They have, however, memorized a couple of words in Greek that they've been told to repeat. Verse 3 very plainly teaches that nothing was made except for the things that Christ made. That means Christ wasn't made. Now, 
He is the creator of all things. He himself is uncreated. That's what we have there. Chapter 3 of the Westminster Confession talks about the eternal decree of God. And chapter 4 talks about creation. The idea of creation by the word. When you go to Genesis chapter 1, you over and over have God speaking and things happening. Augustine has excellent discussions about the fiat creation of God. He says marvelous things. And in fact, Augustine is so blown away by God's power to make things from nothing that he has a hard time accepting that God is telling the truth when God says that he made all things in six days. Augustine looks at this and he goes, he can make everything by his thoughts. He just speaks and it comes into existence. He didn't need six days. This must be a literary figure. This is Augustine's reasoning. Well, how about this, Augustine? He thinks differently now, don't worry. How about this, Augustine? How about this, Augustine? What if God is so powerful that he could have made everything instantaneously, but he also is so powerful that he could have made it across six days, and that he did so very intentionally as a part of the display of what he wanted to be on display? That's all that history is. I mean, why not just, why not just have Adam, have him fall, have Jesus come, have him save Adam, and then have the day of judgment? Like, we could just do that in like an afternoon. He could make the whole birth cycle a lot faster too, right? I mean, why not do all that? Because God likes a good story. And that's what history is. It's a story to display his attributes. He has caused billions of lives across thousands of years to serve the purpose of displaying his glory. And he does it by the process of the story of history. A creation is the theater. History is the story. God is the author. And we are actors in the play. And he does it because he wants to show his glory. So if you read Augustine on this, be aware of that. You can dismiss that error and you will find many, many delights if you read what he has to say. So, Genesis 1 engages with the idea and God said and God said and God said and we have this idea of of the creation itself being by God's fiat. So let me remind you of a couple of things. One, God does not have a mouth by which he speaks. There is no physical body Where is he speaking? Is he speaking with a physical mouth into space that's pre-existent? No. Space itself is made. So God is thinking. His mere thought. And so the speech that is talked about is plainly the thought of God. As he thinks, he causes. His power is such that what he desires effectually comes into being. He does all he pleases, and everything he pleases comes to pass. So when we talk about the Logos, we need to think about the Logos as the decree of God, which is, again, explained for us in chapter 3 of the Confession. I strongly encourage you to go look at that. You want to study more of it, I have a series where I went through the Confession. And I also have the Eternal Decree. It's one of the things I spent a lot of time on. The decrees result in creatures and the actions of creatures. The creation is the tabernacle of the Logos, It's a place where he dwells and he's on display. Now, 
As a man thinks, so is he. We are our thoughts. But more so with God because he has no body. We have bodies that are a part of who we are, what we are. The divine decrees are divine thoughts or choices, and the person of the Son and the decrees of the Son are unified. It would be silly to say, God did this, but he didn't decree this. It would also be silly to say, God decreed this, but God didn't do this. Because you are your thoughts. What you choose is who you are. I don't mean that in some you-make-yourself kind of way. I mean... What you choose to do is a revelation of who you are. It's a display of it. There's not a distinction between you and your thoughts. There's not a depersonalizing of your thoughts where you can say, this thought is my thought. I think it's true. I choose this. But I should not be dealt with as though that's me. What else is there? What more intimate thing is there? If you are not judged for your thoughts, if you are not evaluated for your thoughts, what will you be evaluated for? There is nothing more personal or intimate than what you think. God is thought. He is a mind. He is a mind that contains all truth. In all reality. His decrees are his making things and his governing of them. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, we're told elsewhere that he is the life. He is the life, and in him is life. His particular thoughts are life for us. And He is life. He is eternal life. He is the eternal source of life. He gives life as He pleases. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light and life are key terms. I want you to look at the list of words there. First of all, believing is the most important and commonly used word in the book of John. 102 times. That's how many times it's used. Knowing is used 56 times, and it's the second most commonly used word. There's a deep relationship between them. When you know the Word of God, you believe the Word of God. When you believe the Word of God, you know the Word of God. So let's just call it 158, shall we? Let's just, let's just go with that. Then we get into truth. No connection between those things at all. Truly. Truly. You put those together. Truth and truly, you've got 107. 107. So, alright, let's just relate knowledge and belief in the truth and truth and truly. And now, what have we got there? We've got like 215 references to this idea of knowing truth. That's about 10 a chapter. 10.5, who's counting? Okay, how about witnessing? Do you think that witnessing to the truth is maybe the thing that's in mind here? Just 47 times. Okay, we're up over 250 now. Love, which is talked about as the idea of seeking the good of somebody, right? And how do you, how do you know what's, how do you do what's good unless you know what's good? So there's a relationship between knowledge there. Also, the love of God begins with the knowledge of God. 
And so there's a deep relationship there. Glory and the idea of the display of God's glory and us seeing His glory by knowing truth 42 times. Word is a relationship between logic and word and truth and knowledge. Right? The idea that those are intimately related. These are the most commonly used words other than like and and the. There are some ands and does. So these words are dominant. And so I really want to encourage you before we finish the book of John to memorize the two verses I've given to you, John 17:17 17, 17, and John 17:3. These are key verses. And I have enjoyed meditating on these verses for over a decade. I think about these verses I don't know if it's more than any other verses, but there's certainly it'd be hard for me to find another verse that I think about more than one of these two verses. John 17:17, 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. Notice what it doesn't say. What it does not say is, your word is true. Something can be true without being a comprehensive truth. You can have something that's true, and it does not have all of the truth that's available. The word of God is truth. It's truth. It is the comprehensive set of truth. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. 17.3 And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The knowledge of God is eternal life. The knowledge of God is eternal life. You want to have life more abundantly? Know God more. Life at all? Know God. Life more abundantly? Know Him more. The knowledge of God is the thing. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. He who glories, let him glory in this, that he knows and understands me. These are key, clear things in the Bible. The purpose of the book is so that we would believe. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Life has to do with this idea of are you believing the truth? Are you thinking the truth? Are you acting in such a manner as to do things that accord with the truth? Are you operating by the design that was given to you? Are you a creature acting like a creature? Or are you a creature acting like God? If you think transgenderism is delusional, wait until you see thinking you're God. There's a lot bigger difference between God and man than there is between man and woman. This is a delusion. We are creatures. And as creatures, we must operate according to the law order given to us by the Creator. So the relationship between life and light, darkness is tied to death, and light is tied to life. And the Word of God is light. And when you believe, you have light in you. These are the kinds of things we are going to see. And acting in a manner that accords with the truth is acting in a way that brings things into the light. And so what we see is this relationship of these things over and over again. And so the use of these words, life and light, are going to be significant themes. And they relate to the thing that's being talked about literally a lot, which is truth and words, belief and knowledge. So go to page 4. 
We will get into this more as we travel down through the book of John. But we are introduced to the idea of the Logos as the image of God, reason and the innate ideas that are planted in us. Christ is the light that lights the minds of all men. He is the logic, the image of God. He is the Logos operating in both the elect and the reprobate. He gives spiritual death for wrong thinking. That is what wrong, that's what wrong thinking is, spiritual death. And there's spiritual life in right thinking. And guess what? You do not have the power to make yourself think rightly. It depends upon the new birth. It depends upon the work of God to shine in the darkness that is your soul. There is the light that's outside of us. There's the objective word as an objective light. But then there's also inside of us the light working to illuminate. And again, Augustine is famous as a great author on illumination. And you will find that if you read, there's a little book I've got over there, a little blue book. That little blue book does two things. One, it's Gordon Clark talking about the idea of illumination. And he talks about the relationship of experience to that. And there's also a little dialogue with Augustine talking to his son, who sadly, tragically died before adulthood. And the dialogue is them talking about the relationship of speaking to knowledge and how we ultimately can't teach each other. So what are you doing here? The idea is that we rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to bless those words and to use them. That the words can pound against your ears, but unless the Holy Spirit illuminates your heart, your mind, there's no difference. Unless the Holy Spirit illuminates your mind, you will learn nothing from all of the words that battering ram against your skull. And so there is a dependence upon the light, both externally and internally. So, we have the light, the logos, as the oracles of God, the preached word, the word coming to us in scriptures. We have the logos as the deliverer. He teaches individuals. And that's that inward illumination. So I would encourage you to study those things. And I want you to think about Psalm 36, verse 9, which we will sing after this. It says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. We don't see light unless we are enlightened. Unless we are illuminated. And that occurs both at the beginning of our salvation, but it also is true throughout the whole of your Christian life. Every bit of growth, every proposition of truth that you grasp, that you previously had not grasped, is grasped because of the work of the Holy Spirit to cause you to get it. We have a fountain of life when we have the Word in us. It is a water that gives us life and it continues to feed us life. To he who has, more will be given. To he who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And So there is this power of life-giving work and this power to add light to light. It is done by the Logos. Verse 5, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. 
Logos is the image of God. He gives us reason. He gives us innate thoughts. He provides oracles. He gives us words. He is the eternal word. Darkness is unbelief and falsehood. It's meaninglessness and evil. And man is the darkness. Man is the darkness. The book of Romans expands on this. Romans 18, sorry, Romans 1, verses 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Right? The suppression of the truth, the darkness seeking to avoid the light taking root. This man's inward life is a frantic effort to bat away darts of truth as they come. It's an endless nerf game, really. There's just this effort to avoid having any of these darts take and hit the person. This batting away, this suppression of the truth. Thoughts that enter the mind that are true are sought to be suppressed, sought to be deconstructed, sought to have reasons to push them aside. But there is an objective clarity and an objective responsibility that exists for man because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Manifest. Manifest in them. There are innate structures like logic itself and categories like change and non-change. And when we apply the category of non-change, eternality, to things like the sun or the universe or a collapsing of the universe over and over again into some series of infinite universes, any of those things, that effort to make the creation eternal, those are all ways in which we take truths about God and we say, no, those are false, and we make them into false statements about non-God. Those things are manifestations of the attributes of God in us. And we bat them away. But God has shown it to them. This is the light that's in every individual. Logic and the categories of things like change and non-change. The attributes of God. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen. How do you see invisible things? Is this talking about a seeing of the mind? Is this talking about a thinking about these attributes? Being understood by the things that are made. Here's the common reading of this, and I want to disabuse you of it. When you see it say the things that are made, here's how most people read this text. Most commentaries will say this. It says, being understood by the things that are made, and people walk away and they think, ah, we understand the invisible attributes of God by looking at creatures and thinking that we can reason by analogy from creatures to God. No. This is not saying you can look at the creatures and by looking at created things, you can know about the invisible attributes of God. No, it is not what it's saying. The section I have underlined there is being understood by, and then it says the things that are made. The things that are made is one word in the Greek. It's one word. So you could more easily understand what it's saying if you read it as 
being understood by the creatures. Now, there's one other place where this word is used in the New Testament. It's Ephesians 2.10. And its use is this. We are his workmanship. We're his creatures. We're his creatures. That's the other place it's used. That's it. The only usage example we have elsewhere in Scripture is referring to man as the creature, the workmanship. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are not possibly able to be seen. What does it say? What does it say? What does it say? It says they are clearly seen. Not can be, not might be, not hypothetically could be, not maybe in the future. Are clearly seen. Being understood, not by means of things that are made, being understood by the made things themselves. That's what the text is saying. Now, what are the things that they understand? His eternal power and Godhead. What does that mean? That means eternality and power are categories of thought, and the Godhead, which is a way of referring to the attributes of God in a general way, the nature of God, which is a list of attributes. Delightfully summarized for us by the Westminster Assembly in question four of the Shorter Catechism. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, and truth. Skip justice, sorry. Holiness, goodness, being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, wisdom, and truth. I skipped justice again, didn't I? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm good at this normally. Just believe me. All right. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So that right there is on display. It's on display not outside. It's on display in us. We are seers of this. And we bat it down. We suppress truth. That makes it so that we have no excuse. Because although they knew God, doesn't say could have, might have, could be able. It's talking about something that's occurring. It's a psychological activity. Is knowledge being used here in the technical sense of true justified belief? No. What it is saying is, though they have thoughts about the God who made them, they haven't properly structured it, they don't have a knowledge of God that's eternal life, they have malformed understandings called idols. Conceptual idols. We take the attributes of God and we apply them to other things. And in making other things into God by giving attributes like eternality or power, what we're doing is we are making idols and showing ourselves to be without excuse because we construct incoherent false doctrines. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. This is saying that we take the attributes or glory of God and we apply them to creatures. We take the attributes of God and we apply them to creatures. 
even as a Christian, every time you ever put your hope in something other than God, you're doing this. Whenever you think this thing, I'm not pointing to the Bible as the Bible is a thing, anything, right? This piece of technology is going to effectually cause the thing I'm hoping for. You're making it God. You think money solves all problems in an absolute way. Money's your God. You think I can make sure I have good health if I just eat right and exercise and get enough sleep. You've made that your God. Anything you think effectually brings about by its power a result, you've made it God. You have transferred an attribute of God, which is effectual in creation, and applied it to anything else. We are all so biased from technology in that way. We all think all the time, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to work. And then you're angrily calling the IT guy because it didn't. There's an IT guy. Now, that tendency to transfer the attributes of God, that tendency to transfer the attribute of God, that is us having an example. Even we who possess knowledge, we have real knowledge of God. We know God. And we still take His attributes and jam them onto creatures. So the great care to tend the garden of your mind, to carefully recognize what are the attributes of God and how do I avoid ever giving those to anything that is not God. My hope is that by thinking about that, you start to see the degree to which there is still darkness even in your own soul. It needs to be scattered by light. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. That word comprehend there is translated as attain or apprehend, overcome in other places. You can find it all throughout. And you'll find even Paul saying, for example, in Philippians 3, when he says, I haven't attained, this is the same word. He's saying, I still haven't grabbed hold of it all. And so there's this problem of the fact that we sometimes think we've learned it and so now we need to do the things. No, the way you do the thing is by continuing to learn. Sanctification is by truth. Sanctification is by truth. You bear fruit as you know more truth. And you do not have the power effectually to make yourself learn truth. Use the means and pray for God to bless it actually believe that we do not have effectual power to make ourselves grow in knowledge but be dependent upon God and recognize it is in his light that we see light comments questions objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights <clears throat>